How many traps does it take to catch one rat? It's not a question I've asked myself before this week. How many traps does it take to catch one rat? I decided three. Three are enough. So I bought six. I set six traps, each with a juicy bite of citrus fruit, placed them around the kitchen. 10.30 p.m., 11.30 p.m., 12.30 a.m., I sat up reading, for after all, who can sleep when a rat that belongs outside is inside? One o'clock a.m., and finally the force of those springs came down. <laughs> we can always depend upon you, Mark Carr. Six is enough. And I went to bed and thanked God for husbands who clean up the mess. <laughs> if I want to catch a rat, I can do it. I will drive to three stores at 9 o'clock at night until I find the traps. I'll buy six and set them all. I'll barricade the kitchen off so the dog is safe. I'll stay up so the little rodent doesn't wiggle out of its death chamber. If I want to catch a rat, I will. It's called being intentional. It's intentionality. We do it in all sorts of places in our lives. For example, if I circle the date on the calendar and I work hard and I save my money, when that day comes, we'll go on a grand vacation. If the orthodontist says, take these rubber bands and put them on and you put a new pair on every night and if you do this, you'll get your braces off early, I become a compliant patient. I want my braces off. Gentlemen, if you'll remember back to the first time when you carefully orchestrated how you might hold the hand of a girl, tell me that was not intentional. Every maneuver painfully planned by the sweat of your brow and your hands as 10 inches seemed like the Gulf of Mexico. And don't think we didn't know what you were up to with your stretching and moving. <laughs> Intentionality. The doctor says to you, do these exercises if you want the use of your hips or your back or your mind. We do it. And if you were in Hong Kong this week celebrating the Chinese New Year when they closed Disneyland because it had overflowed the maximum crowd, it did not matter. Did not matter that police were at the gates. The people just hurled themselves over the fences, Hong Kong Disneyland, to be at the happiest place on earth. If I want to get in, I'll get in. Tomorrow, there will be a flip of the coin. And someone will kick that very first football that opens Super Bowl 40. Either Seattle or the winners. <laughs> now, because the Super Bowl is so important, and because those Super Bowl balls are worth so much money, they're each treated with a synthetic DNA marker, every single one of them. 
And the, that marker can be seen underneath a light. It will be illuminated, and the ball can pass hands 1,000 times, and that marker will stay intact. And because those balls are so valuable and one needs to go in the Hall of Fame and one to the coaching staff and to the players and some sold for charity, there will be a new ball every play the first half of the game tomorrow, each of them marked with the very same synthetic DNA marker. If we want to be intentional, we can. I'm told they put the same marker on the balls, the home run balls for Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa, ball number 66, home run number 66, home run number 70. Wouldn't it be nice if they could put a marker for authenticity on the player, too? You want to be intentional, you will. We do it in many areas of our lives. We make choices. We have a plan. We figure out how we'll get there. When you come into the sanctuary, do you come with any kind of a plan? Do you come with any intentionality? Do you expect something to happen in these walls? Do you expect to really meet your God or to have interactions with someone here that will be meaningful? Do you come with any intentions when you walk into the sanctuary? There have been questions of intentionality that we've asked the entire month of January. As we've looked at Romans chapter 12, we're thinking intentionally about our bodies, our wallets, our relationships, our time. In fact, last week, three of you told me I was meddling when we talked about our time. Well, just fasten your seatbelts. <laughs> because the next three or four weeks should be a lot of fun. Do you come here with intentionality? Romans chapter 12, if you're visiting today, these three verses have been our focus for the month of January, but we'll read just verses 1 and 2 together, and I invite the congregation to read with me this morning, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, as we'll project here for you. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, are we okay? All right. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And I remind us all this morning that we know Paul is making a plea. He's urging us to do things differently, to be intentional, because for 11 chapters he's told us about this unending mercy of God towards us, towards all people. He gives it his best shot, a description for 11 chapters, and he ends it by saying, I really don't know why God loves us this much. I can't make sense of it, but it is so. Therefore... Everything about your life is going to be different now. You're going to live with a new intention. So is it possible that even what happens here between these walls on a Sabbath morning, our worship, my worship, needs to be placed on the altar and evaluated? Is it possible even my worship needs to be transformed? 
Paul has more to say about the topic of worship in the first chapter of that letter. Roman, in Romans chapter 1, down about verse 20, he talks about what it means and what happens when people choose not to praise, when they choose not to have gratitude, not to recognize the Creator, and instead focus on the creation. Romans verse, chapter 1, verse 20, reads like this. For since the creation of the world... God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature, they've been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him nor they gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Verse 24, Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Worshiping creation rather than creator, is it possible it was not only a problem for the time and the place of the Roman Empire of antiquity, but it can also be a challenge for you and I. When Paul says, don't be conformed to the patterns of this world, is it possible we've conformed somehow in our practice and experience of worship? If we look for the Bible, in through the Bible, for examples of authentic worship, and they are scattered from the beginning through the great hymns all the way to the end of Revelation, there really isn't one that's sort of comprehensive from start to finish, what, what we do here, for example, in church. I would like to look at Isaiah's experience for just a few minutes this morning because I find in Isaiah chapter 6, those first six verses, perhaps the most comprehensive experience of worship I see in the scriptures. Isaiah chapter 6, well-known texts at the beginning of Isaiah's experience where he's being confirmed as a prophet, something happens to him when he's standing on the steps of the temple. It is a vision like none other that he ever has. Isaiah chapter 6, reading verses 1 to 6 now. In the year of King Uzzah, the year that he died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered the eye, with two more wings they covered their faces and feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, Isaiah cried. Woe to me, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among the people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth, and he said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. 
Then I heard a loud voice, the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send who will go for us? And I, Isaiah, said, I will go. Here I am. Send me. Standing with the priests on the steps, looking through the portals of the temple, with this incense-filled smoke, Isaiah has a breakthrough, a little vision. He sees something. These creatures that are not earthly, and, and it says the glory of God is so much that even these creatures have to cover their eyes and they have to cover their feet. What Isaiah could see, pretty soon he could then hear because these creatures began to sing, Holy, holy, holy! which in the Hebrew language is the only way to express a superlative by repetition. It's as if they're saying, holy, more holy, most holy. And Isaiah hears the song, and he has a response. He doesn't say, I'm lost. He says, I'm in trouble. He doesn't say, I'm gone. He says, I'm in trouble. I need help. While he's standing there, I think two things happen simultaneously. While he's in the presence of this God whose glory is so much, the text says, it spills out of heaven onto the earth. It's that much glory. And when that happens and Isaiah sees who this king is, he realizes who he is. He realizes his own situation and simultaneously, he can say, it doesn't matter if I followed all the purity rituals of the cultic ex experience here. It doesn't matter if I've obeyed all the moral codes and laws the community and God have established. It doesn't matter because as I stand here, I see I'm still unclean. And at the same time, this stone touches his lips. And as quick as he realized he was unclean, he is now cleansed, forgiven, the sins are purged. They're gone, as if it never happened. And now he can hear. And he, he hears something new. He hears this king saying, who will go for us? And a vision emerges because of what happened to him in the temple, a direction. Does anything close to that happen to you when you come to church? Have you experienced even one of those? Do you see creatures flying around with heads covered? Do you, do you sense the coal touching your lips? Do you, do you relate at all to those six verses? If you can grab part of that vision Isaiah has, then try and imagine this with me, would you? What if when Isaiah heard those creatures singing, holy, 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 he would respond, Boy, the choir's really off today. Why'd they pick that song? Holy, holy, I'm so tired of that song. Why'd they have to get the symbols out? The symbols ruin my experience every time. Somebody put those symbols away. Can you imagine Isaiah saying, look at the way they're dressed. Where's their tie? Did they let a woman in there? Could you imagine any of those questions on the lips of Isaiah after such a profound vision? They seem a little silly, don't they? That is because for Isaiah and everyone in the Old Testament, worship was never something they approached asking, what will I get out of this? Worship was always something they approached saying, what shall I give today? 
That was their orientation. What will I give today? It has been several years ago that a Christianity Today showed up in my house. It had a cover that I identified with immediately, for on the cover was a woman about my age, uh, looking very tattered, very tired, and the stress was woven into her brow and her lips, and you could see she was frustrated and empty, and her hair was pulled back in a ponytail, but not all the way back. She was just drained and pale, and the headline on the front cover said, Are you missing God at church? It is one edition of Christianity Today I kept and put in a special place because I looked at the cover and said, yes, yes, that's me. I'm missing God at church. Are, is this woman? And I began to read. I read that article, and I devoured the entire issue. What I'm about to tell you is what happened to me. This is my personal experience when I decided to get intentional about worship. Because I read through the issues and I realized that I had some problems. I realized in particular that when I came to church and, and I left feeling so empty that something wasn't in order and I realized I was coming to church wondering, what will I get out of this today? So Lee Strobel's is coming to preach. Hmm. What about the music? And I would run through the list of questions and I realized a couple of things were happening to me. I was missing God at church partially because I was missing God throughout the week. I was missing God Sunday through Friday. And I realized that when I come into the sanctuary, if I haven't had God Sunday through Friday, that what happens in here, won't, I won't be a part of it. If there's no good news inside of me that I've experienced, nothing good will come out of me. That's why when we read the inscription in the New Testament, this altar dedicated to the unknown God, there's no such thing as an unknown God in worship. When you worship, it's because there's a known God. And for me, one thing I realized was my concept of worship, my experience of worship, rises and falls with my concept and my experience of God. If I'm experiencing God through the week, something different happens when I come to the sanctuary. I began to investigate all sorts of worship experiences. So indeed, in Riverside, I attended an, um, an apostolic healing service. I spent some time with Pentecostals where they really did take their hand and heal people and they did fall back on the floor. I went to the Jewish synagogue. I went to the parking lot of the church for the Eastern Orthodox Christians and I held a little candle at a midnight vigil as we marched and chanted around the parking lot the evening before Resurrection Sunday. I went to All Saints Episcopal in Pasadena while the entire sanctuary was filled up with a drum brigade. Drums only. Every kind of drum you can imagine. These teenagers marched in and surrounded us playing the rhythms of South Central L.A. Ghetto rhythms in church. And I went from listening to that to receiving communion from Bishop Desmond Tutu, a day I will never forget. I worshiped in some of the largest churches in Southern California and in Houston, Texas, and when I was all done, I realized my problem in church is exactly that, my problem. 
I could probably do something about this. And I got intentional. I visioned a large trash can at the back door of the church. For me, this worked. I decided that there were things I was bringing into the sanctuary that didn't belong here. So I, I just visioned this trash can out there, and I threw and dropped and put aside things that don't belong in here. And I'll tell you what gave me the image to do this. I was sitting in one of these unique worship experiences, and there was a robust, lengthy, solid prayer going on up front, and a woman sitting in the front pew a very healthy, capable, strong woman. We were praying, and I was looking down at the carpet. I pray with my eyes open, just you should, it's probably time to tell you that. (laughs) While we were kneeling in prayer, a cockroach began to crawl out from under the front pew during prayer. A good, healthy, California-sized cockroach. It's a day for rats and cockroaches, I decided in first service today, (laughs) where the prayer goes on. But the woman watches that cockroach, and with one swift movement of her leg and foot, she just came down smack on top of it. We all heard it on the wood floor, echoing throughout the sanctuary, bam, dead. It's almost as if you could hear her go, "Mm -hmm." (laughs) mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the prayer continued. But I saw that day, mm mm-hmm, there are things that don't belong in the sanctuary. There is stuff that has to get cleaned out. And I did my own house cleaning. And I decided on that day as a young mother, especially with my daughters watching, I would teach them how to worship if I didn't clean this up. So I began to deposit things outside of the sanctuary. Schedules, agendas, arguments that were not solved in the car on the way to church. Why are we late today? We're not going to talk about it till church is over. I began to deposit things outside. And instead, I decided to bring inside the sanctuary my God story for that week. Where has God been in my life this week? What have I seen my God doing? Where have I seen this unending mercy of God? That's what I'll take into worship with me. And I have had a transformation in my worship experience that I know is God-given. When I come in here now, something else happens. These are silly questions. I cannot imagine Isaiah saying, why are you singing that song? Why, who put, put that praise band together today? Because I found out that, that none of that mattered. I can worship when an 80-year-old is playing a saw. And I don't particularly in, like saw music. I can worship with a pipe organ. I can worship standing next to a saint who can't carry a tune, but it will bless me so that they have the nerve to open their mouth and belt it out. I can worship with Christian rock music so loud I can't talk. (laughs) Because I realize what's supposed to happen when I come to worship. So we see Isaiah and we see the holy, holy, holy and all of the singing, and we realize, yes, that's what we do here too. We sing our theology. We sing our understandings of God. We sing our beliefs. We sing about the hope it gives us. We sing about the way it inspires us and about how we'll be consecrated this week. We put into words and song our God story, just as we did here this morning. All of those words come out. We sing it. Here I am to worship. 
here I am to bow down. Here I am to say that you're my God, my Jesus, my Savior. There is none like you. Shout to the Lord, all the earth let us sing. Power and majesty, praise to this King. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Singing, I love you, Lord. We begin to sing our God story together. You know there is such a thing as the power of Advent singing. Way back from the early years, have you read some of those accounts? Such a singing that, and a sweeping over of the Spirit that everybody was changed. I'm going to read you just two excerpts from early Adventist experiences. One from Spicer, as when he was a little boy sitting in a, in a building as worship began. I remember well as a boy sitting in our church waiting for the preacher. Our backs were to the street door through which the minister would enter. Suddenly, the silence would be broken by a sweetly musical and strong, sure voice singing a familiar hymn. I can see the singer now, James White, silver-haired, coming down the aisles, beating time on his Bible and singing. Some of you remember Ken Wright did this in October down the aisle. By the time he had finished the first stanza and the chorus, the entire congregation had been caught up and carried away along in the spirit of it. They were joining in. Some of the voices in the seats where the, elder, where the elderly veterans sat might have been a bit worn, overworn, but I would like to hear such singing again. And this excerpt, I believe, comes from James or Ellen White. It is a fact that there was in those days a power in what was called Advent singing, such as was felt in no other. It seemed to me that not a hand or foot moved in all the crowd before me till I had finished all the words of this lengthy melody. Many wept, and the state of feeling was most favorable for the introduction of the grave subject for the evening. We can go on and read more where they say every time they got to a certain part of the song, Brother so-and-so stood and clapped his hands and sat back down until everybody was standing with Brother so-and-so and doing the same thing. We have this rich tradition of Advent singing where we sing about our experience with God and our expectations. That's why we sing in church. It might look a little different now. I want to show you a video clip from this past weekend when our academy kids in this conference went to junior-senior Bible camp. Now, we go up to Pine Springs Ranch as a church, and we know what it is to fit a few of us in the Ponderosa room. Can you imagine 511th and 12th graders in the Ponderosa room? While we were in church last week, that's what happened at Pine Springs Ranch. The images are a little dark, and I'm going to keep the volume down because I think you'll appreciate it better. I just want you to watch the enthusiasm and the movement of these kids, 500 of them in a room, with their hands up in the air. They remind me of Brother So-and-So, their early Advent relative. And you see the screen where they're singing, Every day, Lord, I learn to stand upon your word. I pray that I may come to know you more. And if you watch the entire clip, and because I heard from Academy Kids what happened in that room, I said, I need to see footage, and I saw a lot more footage. The entire room is just moving. And they came down from the mountain and said, Wow, why is it, why is it so easy to praise God in that environment? 
It may look a little different now in these generations. When we sing, we give voice to our God story. Old Testament scholar Ron Allen says this, singing for the redeemed by the grace of God, singing should be no obligation. It seems totally inconsistent to be a joyful believer and a non-singer. Even if you can't sing, he continues by saying, remember, God is more concerned with your heart than your art. Even if you can't sing, singing is integral to our experience here. So if you look around and you see people wanting to move and raise their hands and express themselves, if you see tears coming down their face, it's because God's coming clearer. It's because, like Isaiah, they're having a vision. They're, They're getting a clear picture of their God. And when that happens, we get a clear picture of each other, and we realize in our sin we need a Redeemer. And that's supposed to happen right here in the sanctuary when we come together. Do you come here hoping for that to happen? Because sometimes I'm a little concerned that we're very creative compartmentalizers, that we bring the proper self to church, and we leave the other stuff out. But what I've learned is that everything, like Isaiah, who just stands at the edge of the temple and looks in, presenting him entire, his entire self, everything belongs there. I bring with me anything I struggle. Did I struggle against God this week? Am I feeling alienated or indifferent? Did I struggle with friendships, relationships, disease, diagnosis, job, school, career choices? Did I just have a cruddy day one week? Or on the, con- on the other side, did I have peaceful interludes in my week? Did I enjoy friendships? And did I enjoy my spouse and my children? Did I run across good literature, art, music? Was I stimulated intellectually, physically? Did I have some delicious food this week, like avocado egg rolls, like lettuce wraps, getting hungry? You see, all of that we bring in, in here with us because all of that is part of our God story this week. Sometimes when I think about my church and Adventist Christianity, one of the things that concerns me is this. We have schools and hospitals. We have broadcast centers and mission posts. We have universities and food plants and community service centers and and more agendas and objectives that to last us till past God comes. I just wonder, in the midst of all that, do we still know how to worship? Because if you ask me one of the marks of the remnant church, the church of God that will be standing when God comes in the clouds of glory, if you ask me to define and label the markers of that church, I would tell you that church will be a worshiping church. That church will know how to give praise and thanks and and glory to God. That church will not be indifferent when it comes in the sanctuary. It will be hard to keep that church silent. The whole world will know of the glory of God because of a worshiping remnant church. It is the most important thing we do. A little story is told, I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, when Lawrence of Arabia came to tour England after a war. He was shown around by officials. 
intrigued with many things he saw, but the thing that intrigued him the most was the water faucet, for you could turn it on and the water would come out. And you could turn it off and the water would stop. And he got ready to go home. They were going to send gifts home with him. All he really wanted was the water faucet, so he asked if his workers could just unscrew it. And could they take it home and screw it into their wall? I don't know if you see where I'm headed. I wonder if we are very busy doing all of these kingdom deeds in the world for God. But we have lost our connection and our source and where it is we go back to and what it is we're supposed to do in the presence of this God. When you come into the sanctuary and you decide to sing your praises and tell your God story and listen to, to God's word and receive God's forgiveness, your ears will be cleansed and you will hear something new. Did you hear me say that earlier? You'll hear as if you're hearing for the first time. And I just want to warn you to be very careful because you never know where it's going to take you. If out of the process of true worship to God, your ears are open and you decide to listen like Isaiah, who knows where he'll be this week? I want to tell you the story of Tracy Pay. With permission, um, I speak about what's happened to her this week. Pastor Isaac has been very involved. She's one of our young adult members. And some of you know Tracy. She's a nurse at the medical center. She's also in a graduate program. It just so happened that this week, she has inherited a two-week-old baby. She's 23 years old. And for some reasons that still need to be worked out and some challenges, this is her nephew, and his mother's not able to take care of him, so the court awarded little Jason to Tracy. And on Wednesday, Pastor Isaac brought her to the office, and we sat with her and her friend Mike, and we prayed, and I looked into her face and said, you're going to have a baby in a few hours. And she said, I know. <laughs> she was going to bring him this morning so you could meet him. Some of you already know a little bit about the story because we sent out an email asking for help. And we still need help. This baby needs clothes. He needs diapers. He needs formula. Somebody dropped off, Isaac, you want to toss me that? Somebody dropped off um, a package of little huggies here. This is exactly the kind of stuff this baby needs. We're going to put a bin out in the foyer, and over the next few weeks, whatever it is you would take to a baby shower, would you just bring it and drop it in the bassinet out here for baby Jason? Because not only Tracy, but three of her nurse friends who all work nights are going to stay up around the clock and take care of this baby for the next six months, not knowing what's going to happen to him. She would have brought him, but they took him to the emergency room last night where he had to be admitted because they thought he had maybe a virus, RSV, or something else. So probably a couple of days in the hospital, and they'll be back home. So parents, she really got a crash course, didn't she? She got the baby, and the baby's sick. And I said, I said to my colleagues, you know, you know what makes a person able to, to say yes when they, the judge calls and says, will you take a baby for six months? Why does a 23-year-old want a baby? Because the patterns of this world tell her that the world is about her, and she has her life and her career and her education, and for some reason she's able to stand up and say, yeah, send me. I'll take the baby. 
And I suggest to you that it's because she's very clear about who's in the center of her universe. She's very clear about the way her life should be ordered and what matters most. So as you listen to your announcements on the television the next week about Torino, where I'm listening to the NBC reporter say, Torino, and the drums, and the music, and the graphics, all the world will be watching. Torino, the center of the universe. Or a couple of weeks ago, Salzburg, Austria, where they celebrated Mozart's 250th birthday. And a soprano took the stage to sing, and she declared Mozart as God's greatest gift and the center of her universe. See what our language does? I suggest to you that when it, when it is when we come in this church and we worship that we get straight about what's in the center of our universe. And we're able to stand up and say, I get it, God. You have transformed me. I'll not be transformed to the patterns of this world. You have something for me to do. I'm hearing you now, and I can say yes. When your worship is ordered, God will do something amazing in your life. Amen.